It's time for the Talent Talk Radio Show, brought to you by People G2, a nationwide leader in background checks and employment screening solutions. People G2 gives their clients access to the best human capital management and due diligence tools available. They are dedicated to helping their clients with all of their people-related decisions. To learn more, go to www.peopleg2.com. Talent Talk centers on the topics of talent recruitment and management, leadership development, company culture, and employee engagement. These are all timely topics for CEOs, entrepreneurs, HR professionals, and business leaders. We hope that as you tune in to listen each week, whether to the live broadcast or to the podcast on iTunes or iHeartRadio, that you hear something you can take away that will help you grow and impact your career in a positive way. And now, here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer. Hey, everyone, and happy Tuesday. Thank you so much for tuning in here to Talent Talk. And some of you are here live, so welcome. Uh, most of you come in after the fact on our podcast, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find us. This is your weekly reminder. Go over there, subscribe, make sure you get alerted to every time a new show pops in. Uh, wherever you go, you can go to talenttalkradio.com and you can subscribe there as well. Just as long as you always uh, know when the next great guest has been been interviewed and we want to make sure we're connected with you there. You know, this this show is really about us having fantastic people on who are smart, who are managing talent and are uniquely talented themselves. We sort of use that word talent two different ways there. And uh, we love to have a great conversation to see what we can learn from them, what books they're reading, what are they thinking about, what are they worried about, and hopefully we can take that back to our organizations, back to our teams, and make our make, make those a, a better place to work for ourselves and, and for those that we're in charge of, uh, and hopefully uh, maybe take back a great lesson or a great thought. You know, we've had so many wonderful stories. Uh, now I'm on my second book here. So the first book was The Power of Company Culture, and that was full of kind of the first half of the show's stories and, and a lot of things that happened to me, my organization. And then my new book, which is about to launch here at the end of the month of May, is Remote Work. So if you're interested in learning more about culture and how to have a remote team, whether you're hybrid or flexible or fully remote or whatever that is, check it out on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Town Talk is live every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And for those of you that are here live or maybe listening pretty close to when we did the show. We'd love to have you pop onto Twitter, follow at PeopleG2, and you can uh, see the live tweeting there. Any of the best comments, sort of quotes, links to bios, books, anything that you maybe would have wanted to write down if you were listening in a car but didn't, um, we have put there for you. So, and if you're kind of going to us with us live, you can even ask questions, make comments, and uh, Angela, my uh, social media extraordinaire, uh, will let me know as we're going through the show and even try to put them on, which is kind of fun when that happens into the show. All right, let me get to who my guests are today. I'm excited to have entrepreneur and Forbes book author Stephen Gerard on the show. And then uh, and then we'll bring in after the uh, commercial break, uh, Real Retention President and CEO Tim Cosby. But let's go ahead and get to Stephen. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Chris. Glad to be here. You know, you're an entrepreneur. You're an author of the book, Stuck in the Middle Seat. Uh, but why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself, who you are, kind of what your journey was to where you are today, what's kind of, you know, important for us to know about our conversation today. 
Uh, sure. Let me try to do that as briefly as possible. I guess you could say I'm on the kind of in the third act of my uh, uh, career. The third act is uh, I also just, as, as you articulated, published a book. Uh, so I'm an advisor, an investor, and pretty active in those sort of activities. Uh, my second act was pure entrepreneurial startups. Uh, one in particular was a benchmarking company uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, that seemed to do quite well, and I'm, I'm proud of that. And then my first act was probably 20 years of climbing the corporate ladder uh, in large companies. Uh, and my career has pretty much been spent in or around the pharmaceutical industry. So I spent almost eight years at Merck Pharmaceuticals and eight years at a large consulting and data provider. And then uh, in the second act, I launched my own business. Now, this is sort of a little tangent to that, but when you were talking about the pharmaceutical business, I wondered if you had a take on kind of the... I guess sort of the unique changes of what really happened during COVID. I, I I think I'd ever thought I would see pharmaceutical companies working together, sharing information, doing you know a bit of I don't know general good for society, right? Or maybe this was just long term uh, good profitability for them. But I, what were some of your thoughts on kind of what happened during COVID and inside of that industry? You know, it was good to see a couple things. It was good to see them partnering on manufacturing because mm -hmm. many of them didn't have the capacity to scale up the way they needed to. So it was nice to see them partnering on that. Uh, and what I also saw, which has really existed in the pharmaceutical industry forever, is typically larger mid-sized pharma partner with biotech, who develops novel medications and novel treatments, and then large pharma helps them kind of bring that to mar market. So when you hear like a Pfizer, Moderna, or partnerships like that, it was nice to see those really click and I guess the last thing I'd say, not to be too technical, is the fact that that messenger RNA platform, you know, the Pfizer, Moderna vaccines, after 20 years of pure research, you know, or were able to produce something that fast and that momentous. So I'll, I'll, I'll close the thought with I'm just <laughs> I've always been proud to be part of the pharmaceutical industry, although it sometimes gets vilified. Uh, I'm proud of being part of it. Yeah. And I, I remember reading. Uh... It was, a lot of people sort of thought that the vaccine was hurried through, that you know maybe they would cut corners, it went very quickly. And I had read quite a bit around that really what it was was them uh, having the funding and having some of the red tape put, pulled away, but they were actually doing the work faster because they had the money and the resources to get it done faster. And they could do that for everything they're doing if they had those types of things there, right? So it wasn't that we ran these these things through faster or cut corners in some negative way it was actually that because it was such a focused effort they were able to do all the work they normally do but just more efficiently um and and so that kind of it was awesome to see on the flip side it's kind of like how can we do that more often i mean there's so many important things that we could be addressing right yeah no it would be great to see uh governments and regulatory bodies mobilize like that the other piece of it was uh, people Mobilized. Mm -hmm. One of the hardest parts of getting a drug through process, through approval is getting into clinical trials and getting your clinical right. trials staffed, ramped up and over. The public poured forward and said, I'll take it, try it, let's do it. You know, So a lot of things mm -hmm. coalesced to really make that thing hum. And if we could do it in the future and it doesn't take a pandemic, then that'd be great. Right. Well, I know a lot of people, I mean, uh, were impacted by the pandemic and certainly might have had a huge impact on their career, right? So we were talking about the medicine part and maybe the health benefit part, but, you know, for the average person, uh, they may have suddenly seen their position disappear, their career slow down. I mean, do you think that 
people have this feeling that maybe they are sort of stuck in the middle seat of of where they're at uh, at this point with the pandemic su- suddenly coming on like this? You know, a lot of people that are, I'll call it kind of in my orbit, and I should qualify it by saying these are typically B2B professionals, and there's millions of them. You know, there are lawyers, accountants, architects, engineers, consultants, you know, list those five professions alone, and you've got probably tens of millions of people working in those. Those people experienced a couple things is they were definitely probably working from home, Uh, Some of them were furloughed or laid off, or some of them were wondering if they were going to be furloughed or laid off. So that type of isolation, uh, along with, am I furloughed? Am I laid off? Is it slower? Am I going to have to take a salary cut? I know a bunch of people that that happened to. You take those things put together with those people also having their proverbial 10,000 hours of experience, so being probably pretty good at some things you know, that coalesces to have them say, you know what, maybe I should start full-blown my own business, or maybe I should start a side hustle. Uh, And those people, and I didn't name my book, a colleague of mine did, you know, he got on a plane once and he saw everyone hustling to get in the middle seats, road warriors, you know, flying to different places, you know, to do consulting gigs. And he's like, your book is for those people that are stuck in the middle seat and want to maybe branch out on their own. Yeah, and, and I think you bring up a good point about, you know, this timing. And I'm, I'm wondering if there are maybe certain factors that you think, you know, leaders happen to particular leaders for them to be ready to branch out on their own. So, you know, I started my business back in 2001 because of 9-11. I mean, I saw that and I went, oh, I'm not happy where I'm at. Life's too short. I'm going to go and finally start my own thing. Uh, I saw a lot of people start their own things in 2009 uh, when we had the recession. Uh, and I certainly have seen a lot of people now. And what's interesting about it now, and you started to allude to this, a lot of people maybe didn't lose their jobs, but maybe they were severely reduced. And there was sort of like a lot of first three or four months, it seemed like people that were still hired had a lot of extra time, right? Where they could, if they were smart, they were working on a skill, they were developing that next business, they were you know coming up with ideas. So are there other factors that sort of make this, I guess, ideal or maybe more uh, appealing for, for for leaders to get out of their middle seat comfort zone and, and to branch out into maybe actually flying the plane, right? Yeah, no, actually the, the last part you said there, I'm, I'm smiling, you know, it, I think it takes a bit of a jarring when you're in your middle, I call it mid-career, you know, 35 mm-hmm. and above, you know, it takes a bit of a jarring sometimes to step back and go, wow, maybe there's a different or better way or something I want to try. You articulated 9-11, you had the global financial crisis. For me, I had went with some internet startups in the early 2000s and two or three of them kind of failed and I found myself out of work. Let's use the jarring word fired. You know, we could we could couch mm-hmm. it with laid off, furlough, you know, furloughed and all that. I was fired, you know, <laughs> and I walked out that day and said, there's got to be a better way. So my point is, I think it sometimes takes a jarring to have you sit back and sit and say, maybe there's a different way. And I think this pandemic in the things we just spoke about was a jarring. And some of those people said, you know what? I've, I've got my proverbial 10,000 hours. I know what I'm doing. I like, I hope it, it also is. I like what I'm doing. I like being a lawyer, you know, in a certain uh, market. And you know what? Maybe it's time for me to get a few clients on my own, or, you know what? I'm going to chuck it. I've saved some money mid career and I'm going to start my own thing. You know, and I guess one of the interesting parts about that is once you've decided to go do your own thing, 
Uh, it's like, how do you determine really where you should go? Because you've brought up that concept of the 10,000 hours a couple of times. And, you know, for anyone who doesn't know, it's this idea that if you've spent that time, those 10,000 hours practicing, learning, knowing, you know, executing, whatever it may be around that uh, skill set, right, that you should be an expert, you should be very good at what you do. Uh, 10,000 hours on a cello, 10,000 hours as an engineer, 10,000 hours as a doctor, whatever it may be. But I, I kind of find that sometimes people, if they try to go start a business exactly in their wheelhouse, right, with exactly what they know, exactly what that 10,000 hours is around, you know, it's okay. But that's not necessarily like that, that catapult into, geez, I'm in this business and I can see there's going to be this new thing. And I don't really know how to do this new thing, but I'm going to go create this new business around this new idea and this new thing. And maybe I've got obviously some overlap on how to run a business or how to manage people, but like you might be a doctor and suddenly come up with an idea on like how to create, how to invent some new thing and that might impact, you know, how to clean things better, right? How to disinfect, or maybe it's, you know, something totally different, right? So what's the balance there? And is there a balance or is it just more like, you know, inspiration? What's your thoughts there? Well, you know, you, you can always, you can always make, not always, you can always get the bolt of lightning idea that hits you that has nothing to do with what you are, right? The, mm-hmm. So, you know, those kind of things, if they come and it, it looks good and you test it and do all the things you should to start a business, then, you know, Godspeed. I think those are the rare, the rarer uh, successes. I think the more common ones uh, that you see day to day are people start with a couple things is they start inside out instead of outside in. I was guilty of outside in. I was, you know, the early days of the internet, I was like, oh, look at that internet business. I should try that. But I knew nothing really about it or that market, or I didn't have a passion for it. So start inside out, which is do what you love. Now that's one of those duh moments, do what you love, but I'll give people three ways to measure what you love. When you're going to be doing it, you can't wait to do it. When you're doing it, you lose track of time. And when someone interrupts you, you actually get angry. For me, I love doing analysis. I love sitting at spreadsheets and doing business analysis and coming to conclusions and actions and things like that. So no secret, I started a benchmarking and advisory company comparing very complicated pharmaceutical companies to each other as benchmarks. That's an analytical business. So when I was doing it, I couldn't wait to do it. I love doing it. And if someone knocked on my door, I was kind of angry. Like I'm busy doing my thing. So I think you've got to start with what you love. And then the last thing I'll say is you've got to be willing to adjust it and tweak it the way the market wants to accept it. And you've got to create that uh, ability to do what you love, but craft it so the market really wants it, but not get too far afield that it's not what you love anymore. So if you wanted to start a wine business and a wine store and it grew into becoming a bourbon distributor, you better make sure you would like to distribute bourbon Mm-hmm. Because you really started with wine, so I think those are a couple ways that I process it, and the people that I know. Yeah, and there's some there's a lot there to sort of unpack because what you love doing can be a really tricky thing to figure out. Um, you you might say I enjoy teaching children, but if you really look at it and you were to kind of break that down into several pieces, you may figure out what I really like doing is teaching people how to do something, and that means you could be a college professor, you could be a trainer in a company, you could be, right, that maybe the children part wasn't that important. It was just the being someone's coach, being someone's mentor was what you liked, right? And there's a lot of different applications to a single skill set. If we get rid of some of those, I guess, sort of chains around what we think we're supposed to be. Um, 
you know, and then the other part too, though, is I've heard a lot of people say, you know, do what you love. And there's another sort of follow your passion, right? I've seen a lot. I have a lot of friends that have started those kind of businesses and then they didn't do well. Um, they, they forgot to add and comma and that people will pay you to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> No, it's a great point. And two two comments come to mind is I really enjoyed making wine in my basement, you know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago. And that was one of my things. But, you know, it turns out, quite frankly, I kind of sucked at it. Excuse yeah. my French. <laughs> so like that really wasn't going to be something I would be good at. So I had enough wherewithal to go. This is going to be a dead end. The other thing I'd say is, you know, I agree with you. There's a do what you love, but then you, you've got to make sure it's differentiated and can find a place in the market. And by that mm-hmm. means you go out and do it. You go out and meet people and try to sell things and, and let it craft. And then the other thing is it's got to have an economic model to it. You know, if it's a side hustle, there's a certain degree where it's going to be worth it. If it's going to be a full-blown single person business, then that's got an economic model to it. Or, Hey, I'm on my, I'm on a journey to build a large or mid-sized company here. That's got a different economic model. So the economics have to follow pretty quickly or you're out of business and it's a hobby. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when something's a side hustle, I always feel like if you can do something and you kind of like it and it's fun, great. If you can do something and you can give someone else most of the other work, you can outsource most of the that part of it, great. But I think if you're sort of like basically working two full-time jobs to try to figure this out, you know, is there a point to where maybe someone has to decide, hey, this isn't worth it and or maybe I shouldn't continue to do my nine to five and I should invest in myself and fully jump in and make this other thing work if I'm willing to put in that many hours and that much time into it, right? Um, is, there, is there a breaking point there, do you think, where someone needs to, to think about that? You know, I, I, I think a couple thoughts. There, it's one of those two, I'm, I have a job and I'm starting something. One of those things should at some point have a magnetic pull to it. Mm. You know, and if it's that job that was just going to be a side hustle and it, boy, this is taking off faster than I thought, there there probably will be a magnetism to that success. Whereas if it isn't, maybe the magnetic pull will be, hey, I really need to concentrate on my job and not, you know, mess that up. Uh, The other thing is just the economics of it. What is it you're looking to achieve? I think one of the things I've tried to hone in on is this whole mid-career. And let me marry that with uh, the concept of retirement has kind of come and gone. You know, that was my dad's generation. You know, he was a teacher for 40 years in a school system and he retired at 65 and got a pension. Well, that got obliterated 15, 20 years ago. So now people are being challenged with not probably having a pension, maybe not having that security. So maybe starting that side hustle a little later in your career, keeping at a level you can balance. And then when you actually do retire, maybe that's the meaningful income and the intellectual curiosity and interest that keeps you going and you're doing it until you're 80 years old for heaven's sake, if you want to, or you can always just pack it up and say, yeah. And it's so, it's interesting. You kind of bring that up. I mean, that idea of retirement for most people is gone. And uh, yet on the flip side, I think it's because people can find things that we like doing and we find a purpose in. Um, And yeah, if you can find that, that thing later on in life, I I think most of the people I know that lived a very long time, they had something in their life in that third chapter, or if, you, if we say there's only three chapters, but it, it, whether that was volunteering all the time, right, that they're really passionate about, they were financially set or another business uh, or going back to school, or like they had something that was keeping their minds, you know, really focused and, 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 and 
sharp, right? As opposed to, well, I'm going to retire on this date and I guess I'm just going to travel. I'm just going to sit on a cruise ship every other month and that's all I'm going to do, right? Uh, and, and, which sounds like a lot of fun until you're about two years in and I think people get pretty bored. So, <laughs> I, I was fortunate. I, I'm 58 years old now. I sold my business at 47 and I stayed on two or three years as part of an earnout. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm making is let's just call it at 50, I had the absolute ability to retire. I can tell people this categorically, and this is not moaning because I've been very fortunate in life. The afternoons get very boring. Okay. You can only play so much golf. You can only do so (laughs) much traveling. The afternoons get boring. So you want to do things that check a lot of boxes for you. Right. Right. Well, uh, we always like to ask our guests when we have time, is there a book that you're reading these days that you might uh, suggest our, our listeners check out? You know, there's there's a couple books I'm reading. I, I reread almost every year what they don't teach you at Harvard Business School uh, mm-hmm. by Mark McCormick, the fellow that basically started sports marketing. Uh, I love that book. It's got a lot of great practical advice that still resonates today. And I couldn't get into Harvard Business School. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of uh, try to check that box. Uh, the other thing I'm reading is Inside the Empire, uh, which is a book about the Yankees. I'm a Yankee fan. So I'm, I'm enjoying reading that. So those two books are, are kind of in my rotation right now. And I also remember in in your book you have the the three L's that maybe one will have achieved by mid career. So to kind of give everyone an an opportunity to understand if they're in that space or they're near that space, because I don't think age necessarily is the perfect barometer, but really, uh, you know, what are those three L's? So I, I have the opportunity to speak to uh, uh, undergraduate students and graduate students, and I and about entrepreneur activities, and I say learn, lead, leverage. Learn everything you can when you're in your 20s. Learn your, what you, you're good at. Uh, learn If you're accounting, be the best accountant you could be. Learn everything about accounting. Learn about your company's business. How do they make money? What's their economic model? Then if you're good at it, you'll start to lead. You may lead departments, projects, client activities, et cetera. And then when you get to your 40s, leverage the learning and the leading, hopefully in a market you've come to understand, to start your own business. And I don't mean it to be that literal 10 year chunks. A lot of people accelerate through that more quickly, but I can tell you that it's not at 25. You've right. learned, led and leveraged. So that's my my three L's that I kind of implore people to think about. Yeah, and you can always learn a lot. And if you are really good at something, you could go and lead. I mean, uh, excuse me, go and leverage a business and let somebody else lead, right? If you have a great idea and you get investments, you let somebody come into the leading part. I've seen that work really well, but uh, it's, a, it's a great way to kind of frame it uh, for people. Well, last question. Uh, most importantly, how can people find out more about you? How can they get a hold of you if they're interested in you, your book and, and the work that you're doing? Uh, thanks for asking. It's just simply my name. So it's www.stevenegerard. It's P-H-E-G-E-R-A-R-D.com. So it's literally my name. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you uh, sharing your, your knowledge and, and more about your book. Uh, hopefully people will be able to check that out. And uh, again, just thanks. Well, hopefully we can have you come back to at some point and give us an update on everything you're doing. Thanks, Chris. I enjoyed being here. All right. Thanks, everyone. We're right back at this quick commercial break and bring in my uh, second guest. Uh, who is my second guest? Tim, Cro- Tim Cosby. That's right. We'll be right back. Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months. And the same thing goes for background checks. 
In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com. Welcome back to the Town Talk Radio Show. In case you missed our first guest, Stephen Gerard, you can hear his interview or re-listen to this one if you like by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. Even go to TownTalkRadio.com right now and subscribe there through our Podbean account. Uh, we will make sure to send you an alert anytime there's a new show, and you can always be caught up on the great information that our guests are sharing. All right, uh, don't forget we're also tweeting live, so follow at PeopleG2. You can comment, ask questions, uh, get all the best quotes, links to books, links to profiles there if you're not able to write it down when you're listening. And uh, what, we'll go ahead and bring in my next guest, who is the Real Retention President and CEO, Tim Cosby. Tim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris. Good to be on Talent Talk today. Yeah. So uh, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? What's important for us to know about you and our conversation today? Well, uh, Tim Cosby is my name. I own a company called Real Retention. Um, I'm a husband, father, friend, and uh, this has been quite a year that we've all been through together, especially yeah. as, a, as a business owner. So, but uh, really passionate about helping companies and individuals flourish. That's what we do. Well, we're certainly under a lot of new realities these days, whether it's where we can go and how we go. And I guess it's getting a little bit better, but certainly it feels different. And we've talked about this idea on the show that it's the first time in my lifetime that, you know, I couldn't just go where I wanted to go. I couldn't just go do what I wanted to do. And We've had that freedom here, and most people have that freedom. Not everyone has that freedom, but most people do to kind of so to have in a large event like this, right? Change our reality, change our lives to where we couldn't just go do whatever it is we wanted to do was uh, was new. And I think a lot of people have had these new realities in in what's happening with their careers, what's happening with uh, the talent they have in the organization. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of those new realities of effective talent development, especially of our of our next generation leaders. Yeah, uh, really, really good question. Thanks for that. I, I really think that we're facing a, a leadership crisis with next generation leaders. Um, I don't think that organizations are developing a leadership pipeline like they need to be. Um, according to the research that we've read, 80% of millennials want to be developed as a leader and 55% say they are not satisfied with the leadership development that they're currently receiving. And on top of that, 70% of millennials um, will leave their company in the next couple of years because they're not being developed. So the, the talent development landscape, I think, is, is changing pretty radically. And, uh, and that's kind of where we came in because we saw 
uh, a kind of a fit for us because we we really kind of focus in on managers because we believe that they're really the key to really making sustainable change in an organization. So let's break that down a little bit. Um, do you think there's been a shift in whose responsibility it is to develop a leader? Um, you know, I think when I entered into the the the, the business world, right, in, when I was young, I was sort of expected to know how to do a lot of things. I was, or or if I wasn't expected, then if I went and figured out how to do it on my own, I could quickly maneuver. I could get promoted. I could, you know, get a better job. Um, but has there been a shift in that responsibility? Do do or has it always just been that people, most people, expect their companies to, you know, to teach them how to be better leaders? Wow, that that's a really good question. I'm not sure that I could really, uh, you know, pigeonhole <laughs> a generation because <laughs> you wouldn't like that. I don't like right. to be pigeonholed either. Yeah. I've met so many just uh, terrific millennial and mm-hmm. iGen leaders along the way. Um, I think for even, I mean, I'm I'm a baby boomer, but um, I think we all want to be developed. We all want to have responsibility in that. The problem is, is when you get in a in a work situation where you've got a manager that really just wants to tell you what to do, and it's all about mm-hmm. compliance. There's no autonomy. They're not asking questions. They're just telling you what to do, and that's not development. And uh, millennials or iGen won't stay in that kind of company. Yeah, and and I I think the for me the answer is uh, top companies have always trained people to be great leaders. They've always worked on that and developed that and invested in that. Uh, I think the shift maybe that more people realize that companies good companies do that work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's more uh, information out there. So maybe 50, 60 years ago you didn't know that unless you were in a really great company that that was even available. I mean there's. There's a lot of good examples there. I mean, 3, 3M uh, is an example of doing a lot of really cool work with leadership and and how to deal with mistakes. And, you know, long before it was cool to even talk about that stuff. So, oh yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's interesting. I think that, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Are, do you think companies are ready for that responsibility? It sounds like they're not meeting mm. the challenge yet, right? But are they ready for that? Oh, boy, well, that that's a really great question. I wish I really knew the answer to that. I could <laughs> I could take a stab at Just it. Just take a stab. Know? That's yeah. Um the the companies that come to us are ready for it, otherwise they wouldn't come to us. Right. So we start at the top of the company and if the executive leaders um don't realize that a change needs to be made and they need to wake up and smell the coffee, then we're not going to work with that company because they won't even be talking to us, right? So the the companies that come to us, somehow they have reached a level of pain that they just say, you know what, we we can't go on like this. We we've got right. to we've got to fix things. So that that's what we're finding. Because I usually see most organizations go through a, they're in a startup mode and they're really developing their people. Everyone's wearing lots of hats. Everyone gets lots of opportunities, right? And then you get a little bit too big and then they can just go and hire for it, right? They can go grab those next people they need that they can uh, level up their talent, level up their leadership. And then they get even bigger, right? If they continue to be successful. And now they're so big that it's too hard to to just go keep buying it and just to keep trying to make it happen that way. And so then if they're smart, they end up going back to their roots, which is work with people, develop people, have a plan, have, 
have actual secession planning and leadership training and all of that. It's sort of almost cyclical. Of course, the, the organizations that don't do that, they seem to fall on their face, uh, disappear, get sold, or uh, I don't, whatever happens to, to, to crappy companies. But <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think that's going to be even more so in the future, Chris. Um, yeah. Companies that don't wake up. Uh, there's a lot of companies that are right now in kind of survival mode, yeah. and, and I, don't, I don't blame them because this has really been a rough stretch. But the companies that are going to thrive in the future see this as an opportunity, uh, not just a challenge. And uh, it's an opportunity to start developing leaders from within the organization, for sure. Yeah, and we noticed that uh, although I would have never asked for COVID to happen, if, if it had to happen, a silver lining for us was we finally had time to do projects we always meant to do. We finally had time to send people to trainings and, and, and learning events that maybe we kind of slipped, you know, just we were a little too busy and we just, oh, we pushed it off another three months. It was just, and we'd ask people what trainings they wanted to go to. Oh, I really want to become certified in this. And then a year had gone by and they just hadn't had time to do it. And so it was like, okay, we know we're going to be slow at least the next three or four months here. Go get it done, yeah. right? Go get those things done. For us, it was, we couldn't believe how much time people spent, how many certifications and educations and trainings they attended because they had the extra time. Um, you know, is, is that something you think it's a time factor for a lot of companies? Um, or is it, uh, is this more of a leadership thing? Is this a cultural thing if they're not getting that, this sort of training in? Yeah, I think it's a leadership thing. I, I don't, I just don't think you can blame this on time. Because um, if you don't develop your leaders, uh, then you won't even be around. So forget right. even talking about time, right? Um, I, th I think that, you know, the really good leaders realize that they've got to be developing new leaders all the time. And, you know, within, they say what, within five or 10 years, uh, over half of the workforce is going to be next generation. And uh, they, they want to be developed. And the problem is, is that a lot of companies don't have a plan for that and they don't know how to do that. So we just said, well, what if we came along and, and really encourage companies and help them find that plan and put that into place so that they'll be around in 10 years? Has that sort of the landscape of what that next gen leader looks like or the challenges that they're dealing with changed over the last five years compared to the time before? Yeah. I, I think there's been quite a change. Um, for one thing, as you know, and, and your listeners know this, um, the employee is now in the place of power. And I don't ever remember a time in my 67-year history where that was really the case. So they're, you know, a good employee uh, has a lot of options. So they're, they're really kind of, kind of holding the, the power there. I think that the uh, the digital labor platforms and all of the options that are there for the gig economy uh, make it even more challenging for traditional companies to reach out and hire talent because there are so many more options. Uh, the competition is global now. It's not just you don't get somebody just from your neighborhood. If they're working online, uh, they could be from Australia. So I think those things have really changed. I think some of the bigger changes have been the fact that there are five generations on the work floor. 
that's been a huge, mm. huge shift. Just like, how do you, how do you manage that? So we're taking like, you know, 60 years of experience and putting everybody on the work floor and say, go get something done. And right. <laughs> that's, that's a, I think that's a really big challenge. I think one of, maybe one of the biggest that we've seen is that uh, next generation leaders, uh, for them, development and personal growth is number one, even overpay. So that's mm -hmm. what they want. They want to grow and develop. And so um, I think, you know, that was not necessarily the case when I first started working in, you know, the late 60s and early 70s. You know, nobody was really talking like that at all. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that this next generation, uh, the demographics have changed and I think their needs have changed radically. Yeah. And, and we talked about this earlier. I think the, the, influx of information right just to be able to if you go in and google well what is my what are these other companies doing or if even on our mobile phones i mean half the articles that are there for me to read are about leadership or what this company's doing or that i mean they certainly pick up on that so i'm inundated with this barrage of information that either tells me i'm doing more than everyone else or i'm do i'm doing far less than everybody else right so some barometer of what's happening in the marketplace that i just don't think was there before yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So, you know, I, it's a lot like uh, a lot of parents are, you know, get freaked out, would never let their kids go out and just play all day on the street like I did because there's so many news articles about kids getting abducted. And yet abductions yeah. of children are actually far less likely to happen than they were 50 years ago. Huh. Uh, you just hear about it more, right? So we have yeah. this sort of uh, different model. So yeah, for sure. Uh, it, it, it is it is a big change. Um, you know, has the has the talent landscape been changing as well? Uh, you mentioned the them really having more opportunities, right? Them having more uh, places to go, kind of having the upper hand, of almost like a, a seller's market to uh, in real estate, right? Um, I've noticed that we've been talking for years about how remote work allows you to hire anywhere. And so you can go and get a person in a completely different area that pay less and get a great person who has the same education, same experience, but just doesn't live right in your little you know, corner of the world. Um, which I think is great for companies in the beginning, but will continue to reinforce this idea that they have even more options and even more places they can work. Uh, what else are you yeah. seeing inside the talent landscape? Well, um, I, I think for sure there have been a lot of changes in the talent. Maybe a, a lot of the, the new uh, next generation workers that are coming into the market um, maybe don't have the same uh, level of communication skills that are needed to to do their job so we're seeing that that's that's kind of a, a detriment but i think what what we're really seeing that's um kind of causing the bottleneck is that executive leaders and managers in organizations just don't understand that the way they develop this next generation of leaders has to be different than the way we were developed in my generation yeah. right and I think that's really where the the rub has come. And so that's, that's we you know we developed a product called conversational management because we said if you want to take your organization, in terms of their culture up a notch, then you've got to improve the relationships. And if you want to improve the relationships, you have to improve the conversations. So everything yeah. come down to these conversations. And a lot of people just don't know how to have good conversations. And a lot of managers don't understand that. So our model basically teaches them kind of an operating system to have 
more empowered conversations, let's call it. Well, I remember this is good, good 12 years ago or so being at a conference and this woman was explaining how they solved their talent retention issue. And it was one really simple thing. They realized that all of their new employees at the time, those were all millennials coming in the door, that 90% of them did not know how to use a traditional office phone. They didn't know how to use it, program it, make the voicemail work, transfer a call, these sort of things we took for granted. And so they would be thrown onto their desk, told to do their job, didn't know how to use this piece of equipment. And it was so frustrating for them, they would quit. Right. Um, and it was like this very small little thing, right, that caused them so much pain that they would leave a, a good job. And if they just gave them training on how to use a phone, they would retain them. It went from the average of two to three months to the average of two to three years. And so I'm wondering, like, are there those these same kind of learnings now that these now that these people are much older and they're no longer entry level and now they're becoming leaders, right? Uh, they did all their learn as our first guest on the show today talked about. They did the learning in the first ten years. Now they're starting to do the leading in their next ten years. Uh-huh. Do they need a different set of development uh, that's specific to them? Do you think for them to be successful? Yeah, I, what a great question. Um, I think they do need a different set of skills. And even more than that, I think they need a different kind of mindset. Um, a lot of uh, next-gen leaders have been trained and developed by older generations that were using what I would call kind of a command and control, mm-hmm. expert-based, top-down kind of development model where it was all about, um, you know, asking questions and problem solving. Um, but really more, it was like, you know, let's fix this. <laughs> and, and now I think these leaders, these next gen leaders, they might be 30, 40 years old now, who've, who've kind of grown up under, under that model, really are longing for a different set of skills that help them to understand how to ask better open-ended questions. Most leaders don't know how to do that, we found. Um, how to just do good reflective listening. A lot of leaders are just really, really poor listeners. And next-gen leaders, really, they want to be heard. And I think a lot of people in my generation, and, and I'm, I don't need to knock my generation, but I think a lot of leaders out there just haven't learned those kinds of skills. And so I think these next generation leaders are actually hungering for that kind of, uh, those kind of developmental skills. And, uh, and that's, that's what we're trying to provide for them. Yeah. And, and if you study history, I mean, there's some really simple, uh, easy to understand reasons why each generation maybe is why they were or how they came to be. Um, but you're right. I mean, we don't have that command and control as our center focus anymore or a military based type of a, a system and and certainly not an industrial revolution type system, right? Where you just uh, you come into uh, your job and leave. Um, the world of work has certainly changed, and and I guess what leaders will need certainly will change. Uh, you know, we, we we have to work to develop these people. But what what are your thoughts about the benefits on a distributed development model? Yeah, um, that's that's kind of a term that we've come across here. I don't know within the last six months or so. It's probably been around a lot longer than that, but. Here's been part of the problem with that, with this developmental model that we've been using. It kind of rests on the shoulders of a couple people in an organization, mm-hmm. you know, the HR department or talent development or leadership development. If you have a smaller company, a lot of times they don't have those kind of roles. 
And so the, you know, the, the development of next generation leaders was really falling on the shoulders of just a few people. And the problem is with people working from home and all across the world, um, you know, one or two or three leaders in an organization can't handle that. So we said, well, what if we had a model of development where you could train multiple people in an organization, managers especially, but people developers in an organization, um, if you could teach them a model that they could use 24-7, anytime, anywhere, with anybody, about anything. And that's really a coaching model. We came out of a, we were a coaching training organization many years ago. And, um, and, and we just said, you know, if you take a coaching approach to leadership development, then you can take all of the situations that happen in a given day and turn those into opportunities for developing leaders. And so all of a sudden you distribute that development responsibility across the organization. Yeah. Yeah. And that can make uh, such a huge difference for, for companies. And, you know, we, we know not one size fits all. Your organization may be small yet spread across a large area, right? Across the globe. And you may have a huge team and you may all be in the same city and those still provide completely different challenges to, to what you need to do. Uh, it sounds like you've, you've given all this a lot of thought. I'm wondering if there's a, a book that you have, uh, you typically suggest people check out or maybe one you're reading these days that uh, my, our listeners might enjoy. Yeah, I think over the last uh, couple of years, the book that has really stood out for me, and I've, I've read quite a few, but uh, Gallup put out a book called It's the Manager. And uh, that was just a, it was a profound read for me. And, and I would really encourage listeners to, to pick up a copy of that. It's uh, just been extremely helpful, a lot of really great suggestions, tremendous research. And I feel like, you know, Gallup has kind of done our research for us. So yeah. they, they're kind of set the table for us uh, because we can come in and say, hey, here's, here's kind of what the research says right here. And if you use this kind of model, you're going to have more engaged workforce. Yeah. Well, the most important uh, question of the day is how can people get a hold of you? How can they find out more about you uh, if they're interested in, in, in uh, working with your company? Yeah. Tim Cosby is my name again. And if you just go to realretention.com, realretention.com, that's really all you need. And you'll find everything that uh, you need to contact us on, on the website. There's a contact form. There's some information. There's some links to conversational management programs so you can understand the whole, the whole program. But uh, we'd love to connect with your listeners, Chris. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being a great guest with us today and sharing some fantastic insights about leadership I'm sure uh, our listeners appreciate it. And hopefully we can have you come back and give us an update on, on what you're seeing in the world of talent. And hopefully as things, I don't want to say go back to normal, but progress, progress in a positive way. We may continue to see more themes and, and all of that. So uh, don't forget everyone to check out my uh, book that's coming out at the end of the month, Remote Work. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. Thanks to everyone who tuned in, who's listening today. Hopefully you gained something you can use in your own career in a positive way. Until next time, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio brought to you by People G2. 